Hello and welcome to School of Batman. We ask scientists and researchers to use their expertise to help Batman in his quest against crime. I'm your host, Chris Blumson, amateur scientist and professional Batman enthusiast. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the case of the city who laughs. terrifying new epidemic begins to surge across a snowy Gotham. Batman doesn't know how, but the Joker seems to have weaponized this all-too-familiar toxin in such a way as to be transferred without a dramatic dispersal method. The quiet explosion of sneezes, coughs and touches brings far more cases than ever seen before. Whilst the method of delivery has changed, the chemistry of the toxin itself has not. Working with the GCPD and the city's hospitals, Batman and the family rapidly disseminate vaccines to the as-yet-untouched. That is, until an online campaign causes attendance to drop. This week we're joined by Carl Byrne. Carl received his degree in virology at the University of Edinburgh and is currently the Public Engagement Manager at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Carl also writes and performs lots of science fiction and is currently writing about the science of Doctor Who. So hi, good morning Carl, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, how are you? I'm very good, very good, thanks for joining us. Um, There's a lot to unpick in your bio alone, let alone before we dig into the story. Uh, So you've certainly got a lot going on, so let's uh, start at the beginning uh, and talk about your work that you did in virology and exactly what virology means, and um, that looks very related to your current role. So you tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so virology is um, basically just the study of viruses. I suppose the reason I'm interested in them is just because they're awesome. They're, they live on the cusp of life and death. They're basically the equivalent of biological zombies. They can't do anything on their own, but once they get inside a cell, they start replicating like crazy, take over the cell, and uh, cause horrible, horrible damage. Uh, well, for the worst ones, anyway. And um, yeah, they're incredibly small. If uh, my, one of my favorite facts is if you had a if you took a virus and blew it up so you could hold it in your hand, so it was about the size of the palm of your hand. If you were to blow yourself up to the same scale, you would be about 5,000 kilometers tall with a nostril 100 kilometers wide. Amazing. Um, you, you, you said a very striking sentence at the start there. They're on the cusp of life and death. Um, you're going to have to dig into that and what that means. So tell, tell us about that. Uh, okay, so with viruses, they're on, they, live on the, or they exist on the cusp of life. And, and the reason I say that is because on their own, they can't do anything. If you had... Uh, a jar full of, say, picornavirus, the, the virus that causes the common cold. You could have it sitting on your desk and it would just sit there and it wouldn't do anything. Uh, in fact, with some viruses, you can actually crystallize them, turn them into crystals. From all sort of outside means of detection, they're dead. But as soon as they get inside a cell, they take over the cell's own mechanisms for replicating and use those to replicate themselves. So on their own, they're just a little piece of DNA or RNA wrapped in a shell uh, without all of the mechanisms needed to, to live on their own. And then they steal whatever organism they infect and uh, use it to propagate and spread. This might be too philosophical a question, um, but is there a scientific definition of alive? I think if you get five biologists in a room, you'll get six definitions of what life is. 
um, it, it usually comes down to being able to replicate um, and be able to uh, sort of feed it itself. Um, but viruses can't do that. Their their classes are obligate parasites um, because the, the obligate means they they have to do that. So they have to be parasitic. They they can't do anything on their own. And the reason that a lot of people say they exist on the cusp of life and death is they're incredibly small. But some of them are so small that it it's just a piece of DNA or RNA and nothing else. Um, recently, they found the largest virus ever. They keep on finding these really large viruses which live inside of amoebas, which are small little organisms. And these viruses are so large that uh, you can really see them with the naked eye. So they're about the size of a bacteria, uh, which again is very small, but whenever you're dealing with virus scales, they're, they're gigantic. Um, and some of these have nearly everything they need to exist on their own, but not quite. And this is why kind of the, the definition of what a virus is, if it's alive or dead, changes depending on what viruses we found. And, and so these, these large viruses have opened up the debate again about whether they're living or dead. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question, actually, because it seems to be across all kinds of fields uh, as time goes on, um, like the hard and fast rules for what me what like what are the conditions needed for life what are the distinct reasons around x particular thing they all seem to chunk away as time goes on as things get more complicated and gray uh, and i wanted to ask whether that had happened with like definitions of life and definitions of viruses were 30 years ago 60 years ago 100 years ago was it more simple the the distinction between life and death yes i, I think it's the, the the more we understand the uh the sort of murkier it gets. Biology is one of those sciences that physicists hate because it's you can't just make everything a circle and, and work out everything you, everything you know about it. Well, biology is messy and, and squishy and doesn't obey all the rules all of the time. Well, it obeys the rules at, at a fundamental level, but whenever you kind of get to the, the life level, it can be a bit murky. Um, but, but for viruses, like 100 years ago, um, We'd only just discovered viruses. Before then, like the word virus comes from, uh, I think it's the Greek word for poison, because it was only whenever we developed really, really thin filters that you could actually filter viruses out. Before that, you could take a beaker, fill, put it through the best filters of the time, and it would still be infectious. So it was thought to be some kind of weird poison that, that was killing people. It was only whenever they got very sensitive and very, very fine filters that they could actually take these uh, tiny organisms out. Uh, and discover them and that's obviously played into your current role as the public engagement manager at the uh, london school of hygiene and tropical medicine so tell us about what that involves on a day-to-day -day. what 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 are you doing so my main job is to help the researchers uh, explain uh, their work to uh, the general public and to engage with the general public um, so it's everything from helping them design activities that they might want to take into schools or go to festivals, uh, help them write talks, help them with um, the language that they use. So getting scientists to use non-scientific jargon is quite difficult at times because it's the, the language that they use every day and it's a very good method of communicating quickly and unambiguously their work to people who understand that language. But as soon as you start talking to the general public, it becomes a barrier. Uh, it's the equivalent of, if there's any football fans listening to this, the, the offside rule. So a football fan can say to another football fan, oh, that was offside, and they'll know exactly what it means. But to me, who fears sport in all its forms, it really is just a, a, a 
massive words that don't mean anything. But if you explain that it's something to do, which my wife does all the time, to do with where the opposing team is versus where the defending team is and if they're in the right place or if they're in the wrong place it's offside and it doesn't count as a goal or something you see i don't even understand it now but i understand it slightly better whenever it's explained to me in those terms rather than just using the phrase offside and it's the same as science so saying obligate um, parasite without explaining it or talking about the biological mechanisms of rna transfer is just blah 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 unless you go into the details and explaining it I never thought we'd have the offside rule attempted to be explained on School of Batman, so thank you for breaking that duck there. Um, so it's something that I've noticed during my lifetime is the increasing prevalence of things like public engagement and the explaining of um, quite complex science in the public sphere. Um, why do you think, or I guess the first question is, do you agree with that? Is that, is that something that has been increasing over the last 10, 20, 30 years? Um, and why do you think that is? Where is that drive coming from? Is it is it multiple factors, or is there one overriding thing that's that's making this desire to communicate stronger? I think uh, there's definitely been an increase uh, in recent years. Uh, whenever I first started doing science communication back what, 20 years ago, it, it wasn't that common. There was still stuff going on. You had you know, David Attenborough on TV, um, and Carl Sagan doing his Cosmo series back in the late 70s and 80s, but it wasn't every researcher being pushed towards it. Um, one of the reasons for that is changes to funding. So it's now a part of every researcher's remit that they have to uh, explain the impact of their work and part of that can be engaging with the public. Um, one change that's happened a lot is that instead of a scientist going up on stage or going into a room of people and telling people what they know, it's we're much more focused now on a two-way engagement of, of forming a dialogue um, so that it's mutually beneficial for both the researcher and um, the people he's talking to, the public, whatever that public may be, be it school children or um, adults or other scientists in completely different fields. Um, it, it's much more important to have that two-way dialogue going on rather than just going, I know everything and I'm going to tell you the stuff and that will mean you understand it because that model doesn't work. And how are you finding working with the latest generation of, of scientists who have grown up with you know internet and communication is just part of something that's embedded within their life is this do you see a, a generational split with the ease with which scientists can engage with these type of things i'm seeing uh, a lot of scientists who are more willing to engage now uh, even from 15 or 20 years ago uh, because it has become something that they're having to think about whenever they're putting in funding bids and they're having to think about it from the very start whenever they're first coming up with the ideas for the research they're going to do. Uh, it's going to be a little bit longer, I think, before it's completely ingrained because there is still an older generation who some of uh, that group may find it a little bit trickier to engage. And to be fair, there's some scientists who I don't think should be out talking to the public. I think what they should be doing is working in a lab uh, and doing all the amazing research and getting maybe other people in their group to go and talk to the public just because they really don't want to do it or they're really bad at it and you can so you can help with the second one if they're willing to to take advice um, but some of them think they're amazing communicators whenever they may not be as great as possible uh, luckily for me uh, where i'm working i haven't come across anyone like that yet but i in, in previous jobs i have uh, come across a few of them right 
So I think we should probably dig into the story now uh, and talk about what's going on and how you might be able to help Batman out. So we've we've got an explosion of this uh, this weaponized toxin going up across Gotham, uh, and to the people that haven't been um, exposed yet, uh, it's a familiar it's a familiar toxin, it's a familiar virus that's able to be vaccinated against because Batman's got being Batman he's the most prepared scientist in the world huge stock of of uh, vaccines ready to go but there's a campaign there's an online campaign that's causing people to stay away and not engage with these vaccines um this is obviously a fairly transparent mirror to something which goes on a lot in in the day-to-day that we live in at the moment um so I guess we should try and tackle maybe some of the the ideas around maybe why people might want to not engage with vaccines um and i guess that kind of health system um so i've got a few uh i've got a few bits here little lists that i'd like to go through um and you can help us out with a with a with a fact or, or myth um but i think more interestingly is i'd love to get your thoughts on where you think these ideas come from um because you know i think a lot of this comes from a place of worry and love and i'm interested in some of your thoughts around that so let's just dig into some of these so could you tell us anything about how the idea that vaccines are harmful came about is this something that's always been since the origin of vaccines it's something that seems to have appeared more recently, and one of the reasons for it seems to be that vaccines have been incredibly effective, ironically. It's because vaccines have saved so many lives that people forget just how bad some of these diseases are. There's a, a certain middle-class privilege that allows people to ignore how dangerous some of these viruses are because they haven't experienced them or they don't remember just uh, how bad the problems were before vaccines came along. Um, and that. That's not necessarily something they're doing um, willfully. It's something that it's just become part of culture. Um, the the biggest problem with vaccine deniers and, and people who aren't vaccinating nowadays comes from a study that came out in the late nineties by a now disgraced um, liar called Andrew Wakefield, who came up with a study uh, that said that the MMR vaccine caused autism, and uh, it wasn't that simple. It basically said that in this very small group of people that he looked at who had developmental problems, so who, who had learning difficulties or had autism, they had also stomach aches and stomach problems. And those stomach problems were caused by a measles, vac- uh, a measles virus that had persisted after they'd been given the measles vaccine. And it was that measles vaccine that was causing both the stomach problems and the autism. So it was a very convoluted method. Uh, or a sort of path to get there. This got um, simplified in the media as MMR causes autism. And it was found out to be complete nonsense. Like, uh, absolutely complete nonsense. There was no truth in it whatsoever. The paper was rejected. And there's, in fact, just last week, another study's been done. This is 20 years on from the fact showing that there is no link between MMR and autism. The biggest problem is autism tends to appear in small children around the age of two or three which is exactly the same time as uh, children are being given the MMR vaccine. So people see a vaccine being given, and then in some cases, the children getting autism. And they draw a correlation between the two. 
because they're happening around the same time, even though there is absolutely no link. It's just it's just a coincidence that these things happen at the same time. So let, let's go through some of the common things that we kind of hear about this. So we, we've talked about MMR causing autism and where that comes from. Um, there's been an extrapolation over the last few years of it doesn't just cause autism it causes multiple sclerosis Crohn's disease cancer uh, all kinds of things are these just kind of a worried mind extrapolations or are these based on any other kind of uh, reports or studies or, or things like that uh, I, I can't comment on on everything with 100% just because I haven't uh, looked at all the studies but for, um, in most cases, uh, vaccines are incredibly reliable and incredibly safe. But with any medicine, there's, there's always a chance that there can be some side effects. So uh, there have been some vaccines where in a very, very, very small percentage of people, like we're talking 0.01% of people, they can have a bad reaction to it. This massively uh, is outweighed by the good it does for society. For instance, um, just looking at the measles vaccine, People now think of measles as just this little thing where you get some spots and a fever and you're fine. Whereas measles has killed millions of people. More people die per year from measles than have ever died from Ebola. Sorry, sorry, is that the situation now? More people now? or Yes, even now, whenever um, the number who, who die from measles is in, has been slashed incredibly by the use of vaccines, still more people die every year from measles than die than have ever been killed by Ebola. And do you think that genuinely stunning statistic is downplayed or not reported because it's not particularly like sexy, it's not a new disease? Like, wh why do you think that is not on the, the, the front pages, so to speak? I think part of it is because it's not happening on people's doorsteps. This is happening in, in Africa and in India and in, in places which don't get reported on that much. You know, it, it's just another one of the many childhood diseases that is killing hundreds of thousands or, or millions of children every year. It's, it's, a, it's a horrible statistic, but it's, um, it's just something that you can't look at one particular area and go, there's a massive outbreak here. This is happening over a very, very wide area because so many people become infected with measles. Uh, it's possibly the most infectious virus that we know of. If you took every virus in the world and put it in a line, that line would stretch from here to the Andromeda galaxy and back again 25 times. But that line would be very, very thin. So there's a lot of viruses around. And this is, a lot of them are in the oceans and um, don't infect people at all. But, but there's a lot of viruses around. And they're incredibly small. They, they, you know, you can, it takes about 10 measles viruses to infect someone and you could fit a trillion measles viruses in a full stop so you need a fraction of them if, if an infected person if someone with measles walks into a room and everyone in that room isn't vaccinated against it if there's 20 people in that room 15 of them will get measles just by someone walking into the room because it's transmitted through the air and it's incredibly infectious the way the vaccine works is it stops the vaccine or it stops the virus causing an illness and, but the main way it works is by causing a herd immunity. So the entire population, if everyone's vaccinated, there's a few people who won't be able to be vaccinated because they're too young or they're pregnant or their um, immune system isn't working right. And if they happen to walk into a room with someone who hasn't been vaccinated and has the virus, 
if everyone else is vaccinated, they should be protected. But you need at least 80%, well, I guess 90% of people need to be vaccinated for that to be effective. And that number is dropping because of um, this you know, NMR nonsense that's still going on 20 years later. Yeah, um, would it be helpful if I explained what a, what a vaccine actually is? Absolutely. So what a vaccine is, is basically either a weakened version of uh, the virus, or a dead version of the virus, or even just sometimes a little bit of the protein or sugar that coats the virus. Um, and you give this to, to someone, and their immune system will then respond to that uh, protein or, or dead virus. Um, the immu your immune system has uh, some cells called B cells, which produce antibodies, which are these little Y-shaped um, chemicals, uh, which each one of them is specific to a single protein or sugar that a bacteria or a virus might have. So it's like um, each one of these is a key and there's a, a specific lock of one virus that it will work on. Um, whenever you give someone a vaccine, it allows these B cells to go, oh, oh, I've got the key for that, I've got, I've got the key. So it produces lots and lots of keys, which then go and uh, stick to the uh, antigens and allows the other parts of the immune system to spot this invader and get rid of it. So whenever you give a vaccine, you basically prime the immune system to be ready to spot this particular uh, antigen, uh, this particular lock if it, if it emerges again. If you don't have that, the B cells can take maybe 10-15 days in order to, to make enough antigens, where with a lot of viruses that's too late. There's already a, a massive infection and a lot of problems have already started. But with the vaccine, your immune system is on it from as soon as it appears. So it stops the, uh, the virus getting a hold. So that's really what a, what a vaccine is. It's just there. It's, it's a way of priming your immune system. It doesn't kill the virus itself. It's just helping your body be ready to attack it whenever the virus gets inside. Thanks for that explanation, Carl. It was really helpful. Um, we're coming to the, the final part now, which I think is probably the most difficult part of the, of the of the podcast. The question of how can we help Batman get these numbers back up? How can we help the flow of people coming to get these vaccines back up? So um, there's a couple of points I'd like you to talk about. Uh, so it's clear from, from just what is happening that just giving people um, facts from experts and explanations from experts on why vaccines are relatively safe and, and a good thing isn't really helping. Um, so what could we do to get those numbers coming into GCPD hospitals up? Um, how can we help change people's minds? Um, what approaches do you think might work? Maybe if, if people know somebody who is anti-vaccination in their lives, well, how can they approach conversations with them? Okay, I think the first thing to say is there's there's um there's certain hardcore people who are sort of the, the core anti-vaxxers who are very similar to people who believe in conspiracy theories. A, a lot of the anti-vaccine myths are conspiracy theories. And the, the core people, there's very little you can ever do to change their minds. The people who you can change the minds of are, are the ones who have heard from, uh, the, the myths from the core people um, and just gone, oh, well, this is, this is what... Um, the problem with vaccines is so those are the people who you're aiming at the, the 
the people spreading the myth, so I'm assuming in this case it's going to be the Joker or some of his henchmen on the internet spreading it, you can't change their minds because either they're, they've got an ulterior motive or they just believe it so much that you're never going to get to them. But the, the people you want to get are the ones who are either on the fence or have heard these rumours and are worried. Uh, the, the things you need to do are explain um, why the myths are wrong. But the way to do that is not go, oh, so I hear you think that MMR causes autism. and it, Well, this is why it doesn't. If you do that, in a lot of cases, people will hear the phrase MMR causes autism. And that's what will stick in their minds. No matter what you then go on to say uh, about why it's false. It's, it's, they're not doing it consciously, it's just a, a, an unconscious thing that happens. It's the same way um, whenever Richard Nixon went, I am not a crook. Everyone thinks Richard Nixon's a crook. He is a crook, but the I am not a crook phrase made people think Richard Nixon is a crook. So the first thing to do is listen to the worries and concerns that the, the people have. You know, why are they not going in to get the vaccine? And talk them through their worries and concerns. Explain the actual truth that's going on. And if you have to mention the myth, don't mention it as the first thing. Mention it somewhere in there, but make sure you're, you're, you're sort of surrounding it by truth. Um, it's also better to maybe give three or four relevant facts rather than all the information. There's a, a funny thing, uh, there was a study that came out a few years ago that showed that people are more likely to believe something if it's in a list of three than if it's in a list of four. So you can give people three facts and that's more believable than if you give them four facts. And it's again just a, a sort of a psychological thing that, we, that people have dis that has been discovered. Um, so as well as it, uh, listening to people's concerns, talking about the truth, not referring to the myths as the first thing and giving them relevant facts rather than all of the facts. That's the, the main method that I would use if I was trying to convince people that vaccines are safe. It's not going to work for everyone. We can see that um, outside of Gotham with the MMR vaccine. It's, we're still 20 years on and there's still been a drop in the use of that, but it's a much more effective method than was being used 15 or 20 years ago. I think just a final thought I'd like to get your thoughts on. There's been some interesting developments recently on things like Reddit, uh, of kids kind of seeking out advice on uh, how to get vaccines uh, against their parents' wishes. And there's a, been a new law proposed in Washington, D.C. Uh, to allow minors to get vaccines without parental consent, um, which I think is really interesting. Um, do you see these kind of movements as just small isolated bubbles or do you see it possibly as a next generation kind of tide turning uh, of, of the younger generation coming up? I'm hoping that it's uh, it's, a, it's a turning point. Uh, at the minute, it is still little isolated cases, but it's be becoming much more popular and it's being spread through the internet. And there are children who are looking at the facts going, well, if I don't get vaccinated, I could die. I may not be able to have children. Uh, measles could make me deaf. There's a whole list of things that they're worried about and they're viewing their parents as being irresponsible and, and putting their lives in danger so i think it's a it's a very positive step forward that's it for today thanks very much to carl for joining us thank you very much it was great fun and you can find out more about carl's research and work on his twitter the link will be in the description
If you'd like to be a future guest on the podcast, please email us at info at figshare.com. And you can find us on Twitter at School of Batman.